Hey-ho, Tudor-minded people. I'm Gage. I'm Jessica. We're Tudor Time Machine, and this is episode 15 of our podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Please leave us a comment on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page, because we really love hearing from listeners. If you're new here, it's always best to start at episode one, because this is a story project and it goes in order. And we've had such a great time working on it and researching it and bringing it to you. At this point in our story, Constance has just concluded a dangerous mission set to her by Guzman de Silva. She went to the Tower of London to visit the Catholic Countess of Lennox. Now we're heading back to the Arundel Inn where Philomena is hosting revelers from the wedding of Ambrose Dudley and Lady Anne Russell. After the reading, we'll have some fun discussing the history behind our tale and making connections between then and now. Read on, Jesse. Chapter 15, The Arundel Inn, in which Philomena attends to many guests and then just one. A scaled-down rabble from Durham House had moved to the Arundel Inn. The mood was excellent and the drinks plentiful. Philomena was in high spirits. The Princess Cecilia of Sweden set the guests in an uproar, balancing on the stilts of propriety as she led her retinue in an outrageous polska dance. Four stools and three earthenware jugs lay demolished in various corners of the dancing room. This hard-drinking clientele was worth a little destruction. The princess was a triumph, and her voice enviable. Philomena considered trying to speak in a deeper, more musical tone. Anything you might say was believed when spoken with such a voice as Cecilia's, even that you would pay for every broken object and tankard of wine poured, which Philomena doubted. And the ladies flocked to Professor Delanoy, a new favorite of the princess. Philomena heard rumors about this man. He was in the Queen's service, reportedly an alchemist who had promised to produce treasure. Professor Delanoy was bookish and awkward, yet parlayed these qualities into a strange magnetism. Alice relayed to Philomena the message of a friend at the kitchen door. As she greeted clients and nodded her way through the room, Philomena found Blackjack appearing at her side. "'You smile an honest smile tonight, I believe,' he said in an even tone. He had made no move to leave his rooms as he had threatened. Philomena reasoned that he must also want to forget their last meeting. "'Have you enjoyed yourself, sir?' "'A cup of wine with you would be the perfect end to the evening.' Some over-indulgence awaits. I must cart them off to their room or send them home. She handed Blackjack a sugar plate rose, which he munched as they walked through the kitchen. Standing near the stove was a wet moppet in a mud-sodden gown, holding something that might once have been her shoes. Constance, oh heavens, what has happened? Blackjack roared. What sort of a sneaking person are you to arrive in such condition? From where do you come? Be quiet, Blackjack. Your look is lunatic, Philomena retorted. Constance had stepped back at the sight of Blackjack's face. But Blackjack jumped in front of Philomena, blocking Constance from her view. Mistress, this one will bring your end. Look at her, Philomena. What honest person appears in this state, out past curfew, sneaking in the back door? It was vexing, his thrusting his chest about and pronouncing. Philomena pushed him aside. Pish, you would shelter a hundred men, Blackjack. It is not for you to decide whom I let in. I say this for your own good. Do not harbour this stoner here. It will be your undoing, Philomena. Her treason will rub on you. The tower was close at hand, and the merest spark in Philomena's eye brought him to her side. Sir, my tower will take you away and find you a flagon to cool that steam. 
Alice, bring blankets. Philomena herded Constance to a small chamber behind the stair to dry off. Catching sight of Princess Cecilia whirling about in the next room, Constance counted it an excellent coincidence. She had only to tell her mistress that she had become separated from the retinue. Oh, let me call Marianne to do your hair, Philomena insisted. Poor Constance, it seems your family is notorious. The gentleman sees what is. There are no fine ladies who appear just as I did, and he has reason to fear for you, Philomena. I cannot fault him for that. You were right to come here, Constance, but Blackjack sees treason everywhere. You must watch yourself, Philomena said, and then she could not resist adding, I will not ask where you have been, Constance, but were you able to find something about the ring? I have not. I read the verses. They were captivating, but yielded no answers. There are no answers in poetry. The way men write is one thing, their actions another, Philomena reflected. I cry for your shoes, Constance. You must move closer to the fire. I cannot bear another illness. Come, come, Philomena, Constance insisted. I beg you, attend to your guests. Once I am dry, I will join the princess. She will never suspect that I have not been here the whole night. I beg you, return to your duties. Very well, dear Constance. And here is Marianne to put you in order. Philomena made her way back to the noisy dancing. She searched for Blackjack in the throng, and when she could not see him, imagined that he was taking shame-faced refuge. No more lollygagging about with her, eating pastries in the kitchen. She would put an end to it. She took herself right up to his room. His door was closed. It was her establishment, and certainly she could let herself in. Yet that would be a poor way to start. She knocked. He wrenched the door open, cheeks puffed and ready to bellow, but on sight of her he blew the air out as if in a silent whistle. "'You have no authority here,' Philomena said. "'I will not tolerate your behaviour even once more. If you desire an inn, buy one. Your family is able.' "'Philomena, do you wish me truly to take lodgings elsewhere? You have said these words more than once. I will follow the orders given, but if I lived in the Ottoman Empire I could not hold my tongue.' I say again, harbouring Mistress Stoner is spoolhardy. The Queen suspects that family. Landing in the Compter will lose you your livelihood. How witless do you presume me? You believe me to be unaware of the penalties? You believe me ignorant of fines? Philomena pressed, but Blackjack's face remained a mask. The whole situation was thorny. Every man on the battlefield believes he will survive, he observed. You are alone now, without your mother here. It is no business of yours, sir, but Mistress Stoner is not contemplating treason. She is only seeking something lost. What? I cannot tell you, sir, that is her lookout, but there is no plot between us. Why did you not say so days ago? You are cruel, Philomena, leading me to think otherwise. I did not lead you to think ill of my friends. You are content to do that yourself. Why must you be so prickly? Why must you treat me as infantry? Philomena, I only want to resume our friendship. You wound me with your evasions. Once we spoke of how to live. Now you keep me at bay, she felt the plea. The hours stretched before me then. When my mother was well, I wondered how to live, because there was nothing to be done. Now, even this very moment, I should not be with you, but seeing to the party. Then why did you search me out, in my chamber? His hopeful tone made Philomena grasp the situation firmly again. She would stop this overstepping. You should not force your words at inopportune moments. That is not what I desire to hear. His tone swayed her sympathy. Sir, were you the lord of my tongue, what would you have me say? 
Blackjack, how handsome you are, how mighty, how I wish to spend each moment with you, how I think of you when you are from my sight. Philomena was taken aback by this broad declaration. Sir, you far pass the rules of friendship. Without question, I do not wish for an almost sister. Philomena wondered where to go. She felt as if he stood too close to her, but in truth he had not moved. At least a yard was between them. She felt muddled and chose to leave. The last guests were carried off to their rooms or bundled out into the night. Philomena was finally able to rest. Marianne helped her into the night clothes, and Philomena lay on the bed with arms flung wide, letting her mind wander. Her two previous lovers seemed to look in as she lay there. They had both come to early ends. One cut the fleshy part of his palm on a blade as he sharpened it, and was dead within a fortnight. The other fell to the plague. They were pleasing men, good company, and now that she thought of it, not very demanding. They had asked very little in return for their affection. She had not been in love with either, but when they died, it broke her heart anyway. She had not had time to test affection or passion for Master Mark Nash, her betrothed. After the exchange of the rings, he was off to fight the Irish far away. Nash seemed handsome and pleasant enough, but she neither looked to his eventual return nor dreaded it. She tried to clear her mind by reciting a childhood poem. London Bridge is falling down, falling down, London Bridge is falling down, my fair lady. An overwhelming image of herself standing on the bridge as it began to collapse came to mind. She could hear the panicked shouts of the shopkeepers, the splitting of the wood, and then Blackjack, standing in his boat, shooting the rapids below. She would dive into his arms, and there on the river they would kiss, the cold water on their skin. She had wanted that kiss for longer than she would admit to herself. Often, even as they had sat at cards, playing Pope Julius with her mother, the real companionship between herself and Blackjack, his learned yet compromising worldview, his temper, his good teeth, his excellent eyesight that enslaved him to her embroidery needle. All of these things had made her want to press herself against him, winding her legs around him. She sat up. Climbing out of the bed, she walked out of her chamber and made her way down the hall. She craved a tankard of something strong. She chose to walk past Blackjack's room and wondered if he were still awake. She was rewarded. The moment her foot passed the door, it opened, and he stuck his head out. Not asleep, mistress. I want some wine. I have wine here. It is very good. Would you like to come in? I would. Thank the gods. She got the kiss she wanted. It was more delicious than she could believe. The scent of wine and burning wax, Blackjack's slightly rough lips, brushed hers before the deeper kiss, and she felt his beard on her cheeks as he leaned over her. His hands were in her hair. He kissed her cheekbones to get a better look as he drew the hair from its twists. His hands were quick untying. He regarded her appreciatively as her body was revealed. He was endearing as he knelt before her to untie her skirt, looking up at her with a sincerity that made goosebumps run up and down her arms. He wrapped a great soft blanket around her as she sat on the bed and watched him undress. He was slim, with silk skin, but his chest had the dark hair of his head, which ran down to his belly in a defining line. "'Are you judging me?' he smiled. "'I believe myself to be a fine figure.' You are, she agreed. You are a fine figure. He walked over to a cabinet. Philomena admired the muscles in his torso, his backside, and his legs. He unfolded a piece of silk and held up a small sleeve of linen. What is it? One of my gigors. 
a most useful protection I discovered in Italy, thanks to Professor Fallopio. Philomena watched as he dipped the little sleeve in a cup of solution. He then rolled it down his penis and tied it around with a ribbon. He smiled at her reassuringly. She thought it a strange hodgepodge there on his manhood, but as he seemed to like it, she put it from her mind and held her arms out to him. He wrapped around her as he crawled onto the bed. She felt his heat, his skin and hair all along the whole length of her body. His silky mouth coupled with his gruff beard raked across her flesh. It was heaven. He dove to kiss her and the night crushed into one minute as they found each other's salts and rhythms. Oh my. So we're going to cut away from this scene to give Blackjack and Philomena a little privacy. Yes, exactly. We have a lot to discuss in this chapter to do with love, marriage, sex, and early condoms. Gage and I talked a lot about these issues while we were doing research. I think in general we were pretty surprised by some of the 16th century attitudes towards sex and morality because we just assumed more condemnation than we discovered when we really looked back. I think we tend to think that attitudes about sex and the body have just moved from very conservative to more liberal in a steady linear way. And the trend towards more open attitudes in the 20th century, it it didn't follow a straight historical timeline. We wanted to represent some of the various ideas about 16th century safe sex and contraception because these issues are never represented in historical fiction. There really were discussions around these practices in the Tudor period. I mean, Gage and I feel it's a mistake to leave that out of Tudor fiction because it seems like in 99.9% of historical novels, TV shows, and movies, the characters have tons of sex, (laughs) but no one ever seems to worry about pregnancy or venereal disease. And I mean, we know for a fact that these were huge concerns, just as they are today. I mean, how could they not have been concerns for these people? Maybe some people think it's just not a sexy subject, but we think everything about the Tudors is so interesting, and it has a place in the stories that we tell about them. Uh, Absolutely. In this chapter, Philomena is thinking about her betrothed, Master Nash. And we're going to start with just talking about what it meant to be betrothed and how binding a betrothal was. Betrothal was the first step towards a marriage. It was a ceremony where the man and the woman would join hands. The man would give her a ring, which she would wear on her right hand, to be transferred to the left on the actual marriage ceremony. Betrothals were pretty easy to break, actually, and there were a few reasons that you could break a betrothal that were absolute. One is a member of the couple becoming disfigured. Ooh, that's a little... That's harsh. It's a little harsh. It's a little cruel. You got the pox and then that's it. That's it. You weren't going to get married. Turning out to be a heretic, a drunk, a cheater. These were all grounds to have the betrothal broken off. Yes, but from what I understand, if the couple actually consummated the betrothal, then it was binding under all circumstances. And that was true of marriage, too. Until the marriage was consummated, it was not binding. That's the whole thing about Catherine of Aragon's marriage to Prince Arthur. She swore that the marriage was never consummated, and therefore it was not a real marriage and should not be grounds for Henry divorcing her. And that brings up a good point. There's a kind of misconception out there that in the 16th century, people got married and started having sex very young. In fact, that was not the case. 
You know, people didn't routinely get married at 12 and 13. So a couple could be betrothed or even married in their early teens, but they didn't actually consummate the marriage until they were older. A bride might come and live in her new husband's household, but she wouldn't cohabit with her husband and have sex with him. I mean, not in the way we consider it now. These young people would have been kept apart until they, the society felt they were of an age to start having sex with each other. In fact, Sir Thomas More recommended that women not marry until 18 and men not marry until 22. Of course, noble marriages were different. They were made for dynastic reasons and they were arranged early, but non-nobles got married later. The average age for men to marry was 26 and women 23. In the US right now, the average age for men to marry is 30, and for women it's 25, so it's not that different. Yeah, and there are, of course, famous examples of women of the time who had children very young. Lady Margaret Beaufort, who's arguably the founder of the Tudor dynasty, had Henry VII at the age of 13. But it's important to remember that that birth was recorded as extremely difficult because of her immature size. And she was probably physically damaged because she was never able to have any other children despite two subsequent marriages. And that was not something that people at the time ignored. They saw the correlation between her having a baby so young and then not being able to produce any more children, which would have been a real detriment. They saw that having children very young put the women at an even greater risk and the risk was already astronomical. It was around 30% of pregnant women died during childbirth. I mean, that's just astounding. And imagine how many women died from pre-labor pregnancy complications. And the correlation between those deaths and pregnancy might not even have been understood. Because without early pregnancy tests, I mean, many women would not even know they were pregnant until the fourth or fifth month. I read that many women were at the fifth month point of pregnancy before they knew. So dying from an ectopic pregnancy or the throwing up disease that Kate Middleton had. Right, and Charlotte Bronte probably died from that too. Yes, they probably didn't even associate it with pregnancy because they may not have known those women were pregnant. Right, they could have thought it was just a, a you know, a horrible fever or, or something that made them kept throwing up that it wasn't anything to do with being pregnant. So those things might have been attributed to other causes and not pregnancy. And in the 16th century, if you had a fetus die in the womb in the second or third trimester, there was no safe surgery to remove it. No, it just stayed there and would be obstructive or poison you. Oh, it's just awful. And I'm guessing pregnancy-related deaths were way undercounted. Making it to term was a challenge, and then you had to survive the labor. And of course, then there's the preeclampsia and eclampsia, which is what Lady Sybil died of in Downton Abbey. And now we can detect this condition and also other pregnancy-related blood pressure issues, which is fantastic. It is fantastic. But at the time, in the 16th century, I mean, an obstruction could lead to death. Breach birth could lead to a death, infections that set in after labor as in poor Jane Seymour's case where she died of a fever after, days after she had given birth. Aristocratic women like Jane really prepared for the ordeal by withdrawing from society a few weeks before the expected labor and confining themselves almost exclusively to the company of other women who had been through childbirth themselves. Which might have been comforting to them. 
you know, to have people around them that had been through this ordeal. Because let's remember, it was an ordeal. It was an incredibly painful, dangerous thing. Births at the time would be assisted by midwives, not male doctors. Of course, poor women didn't have this sort of luxury to sequester themselves. And there was certainly a class element to the expectations of a painful labor. So there was this idea that beautiful aristocratic women were considered more likely to have difficult labors, I guess because they were weaker, <laughs> more feminine in quotes, while poor women were expected to, you know, drop a baby and get back to work. Women in every class must have been scared. They wrote to family members and existing children to tell them their hopes and dreams, in, you know, in case they died. And they prepared wills to distribute their possessions because it was a very dangerous undertaking. It makes me think of all the scenes in books and plays of preparations of battle. Let's take Shakespeare's Henry V, when Hal wanders his army's camp before war, and we see the different ways the soldiers prepare themselves with prayers, with thoughts of the love people they're leaving behind, with sort of, you know, mental fortitude and bravado. I mean, the women of this time were also facing horrific pain and very likely death when they went into labor. And that preparation that they went through, it's never depicted or glorified. And it's not just because women were not writing at that time. Because all those fabulous female authors in the 19th century didn't write about it either. And it's hard to say it's because labor is bloody, because war is also bloody. I think it's the stigma. Religion told women that the pain and fear of childbirth was Eve's punishment for eating the apple. And I think there was something of the it's your own faultish about childbirth that made women feel like they couldn't claim it as something to be proud of that they went through for their families. Whereas going into battle was noble. Childbirth was something to hide and be quiet about. Statistically, we do see that in general men and women didn't wait to have sex until they got married, despite societal pressure and the, church, and the church's pressure. Since one in three women were pregnant at the altar, it seems that you are definitely right. <laughs> and it's fair to say that they did not wait. Right, and if you take into account how many women must have had early miscarriages without even knowing it, there must have been a large number of women who had been sexually active before marriage but were not actually pregnant when they got married. Women of the upper class had the most pressure on them to be virgins because they had the main, and I use my finger quotes, function of producing heirs. And the men, of course, had illegitimate children and they actually often lived in the household. And the men were expected to support them. It seems like they did understand the correlation between periods, fertility, and conceiving and they understood that a young woman could not conceive unless she had already started menstruating. Yes, and they considered that a girl became a woman when she got her period because she was able to have children. But there are some very weird concepts about female anatomy of the time. So there was a theory based on ancient Greek ideas that the female reproductive system was an inverted version of a man's and that the womb had seven sections so it was possible to carry seven fetuses at once. You can imagine that. I guess it just, you know, never happened. <laughs> because 
Didn't any of those brilliant ancient Greek medical men notice that no woman ever had seven children at one time? I mean, I guess it was just another example of a woman not living up to her potential since they thought women were not as good as men. This was some other yeah, failing. That she years she had the cap ca capability yeah. to have seven kids, but she only had the one. Yeah. So we've read two theories about how the uterus was thought about in the 16th century. So one is that it was sort of a ground, a fertile soil. I think this idea is still out there. And the man planted his seed in the fertile soil. And the other, which I prefer, is that both the man and the woman had to produce a seed to create a baby. And the seed was created by having an orgasm, both for the man and for the woman. So because of that, some Tudor doctors condoned women enjoying sex because then they would have an orgasm, they would produce the seed, and the man would have the orgasm, and he would produce the seed. And everyone was happy. And everyone was happy <laughs> and would have a baby, and that does seem pretty ideal. <laughs> and that was different from the 19th century British idea that any sexual pleasure, particularly a woman's, was discouraged, looked down on, and often connected to madness. Mm. Even if it was decried by the church, sex out of wedlock in the 16th century was very common, and so was venereal disease. And one preventative for the spread of STDs was this gigaw that Blackjack brought back from Italy. Or as we now say, condom, which we think of as a device to prevent pregnancy. Oh yes, but condoms were not developed to help a woman choose when she wanted to have a baby in the 16th century. No, 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 no. no, no. no. <laughs> They were developed to help men stay disease-free, and one of the main proponents of this kind of 16th century safe sex was the doctor Fallopio, Blackjack mentions in this chapter. So who was this enlightened fellow? He was a priest. That's interesting. <laughs> and also a medical doctor from Modena, and he died in 1562. In his medical practice, he really made an effort to control the spread of syphilis, which was a massive problem. So there's so much debate about where syphilis originated from, but what is clear is that it was the first disease in the 16th century that Europeans understood to be sexually transmitted. So of course, this condition was associated with immorality. The Italians and the English called it the French disease, and the French called it the Neapolitan disease. To the Russians, it was the Polish disease, and the Poles blamed it on the Germans. Flanders promoted their anti-Spanish rhetoric by calling it you guessed it, the Spanish disease. We read a lot from the physicians of the time about how syphilis presented in men with visible sores on the penis and pus and ulcers all over the body, hair loss and rashes. But there are many fewer accounts of how the disease presented in women. In fact, I couldn't find any. And I don't know if that's because women's symptoms were less obvious because a sore on your penis is pretty easy to notice. Well, and a woman might have gone to a midwife instead of a doctor for treatment, so there are fewer records. Because evidently, women had the pox at the same rate as men. There are estimates that as many as a million people had the pox. And to put that in perspective, the population of Europe in 1550 was about 70 million. Syphilis was impossible to treat with the medical knowledge of the time. The most effective prescription was mercury, but obviously that's a toxic cure. Another of the treatments, if you were a man, was to have your penis amputated. 
I read an account from one Spanish army doctor from 1581 who claimed to have amputated 5,000 penises. I guess he kept count. Oh, it's so terrible. It is terrible. And there's a lot of debate out there about the meaning of the ever-increasing size of cod pieces in the 16th century and whether it was connected to the spread of syphilis in Europe. One theory is that the cod piece camouflaged the 24-7 treatment of a syphilitic penis, the bandages, the ointments, etc., and that these cod pieces were packed with medicinal herbs and also absorbed the pus. The other theory is the exact opposite, and that's that these oversized cod pieces celebrated the wearer's manhood and meant that he did not have syphilis, and that the size of the manhood was just awe-inspiring. Maybe it was a way of showing you still had your penis and that an army doctor hadn't sliced it off. Cod was everyday slang for wiener or penis. Cod piece is very literal, as if we called a jock strap or willy wear. That's funny. Maybe we should start a men's underwear line called willy wear. But it wasn't funny if you had the pox. It was a huge issue for the armies of the time because men on campaigns would sleep with prostitutes. In some cases, the men would get it from the prostitutes, and in others, the prostitutes would pick it up from the soldiers. And net-net was that it just spread like crazy. Soldiers were dying of it sometimes more than they were dying in actual battles. And our man, the Italian doctor, Dr. Fallopia, who, in case you are wondering, did name the fallopian tube. Yes, he made the connection between using condoms to protect against syphilis. Condoms, mainly in the form of animal bladders rolled over the penis, had been used around the world for thousands of years. But it was Dr. Fallopio who originated the idea of a linen sheath, which was dipped in a vinegar-based solution and then tied around the penis with a ribbon. And he cites a kind of early clinical trial where he gave over a thousand soldiers these early condoms to use. And according to the good doctor, not one of them got the pox. It really helped the soldiers. Mm -hmm. They were much healthier. But the correlation between the use of the sheath and the prevention of pregnancy was not addressed. Any attempt to prevent pregnancy was totally banned by the church and would have been considered a type of witchcraft. But I think it's safe to assume that some pregnancies were prevented by these vinegar-soaked sheaths. And again, though no doctor at the time seemed to care, hopefully it prevented women from getting syphilis as well. I hope so. Yes, indeed. So we'll leave Blackjack and Philomena to enjoy some Fairly safe sex. So Gage and I started this episode by offering our opinion that from what we've seen, attitudes about sexuality were actually somewhat more open in the Tudor period than in later eras of British history. But listeners, we'd love to hear from you on this topic. Do you agree or disagree? So leave us your comments on our Tudor Time Machine Facebook page. Next time, we'll catch up with Cecilia as she pursues her heart's desire with an alchemist. So join us for our next podcast and leave us a comment on our Facebook page. All our gratitude for listening. And remember, then is now.